welcome to the very first episode of Native Sourced News Network, brought to you by Face Triage, analysis of news you can use. Our most rewarding experiences are face-to-face. -face. With no corporate spin, this is your host, 2020 unaffiliated U.S. presidential candidate Daniel Roy Backpack Barron, living out of a backpack, traveling the world since April 1st, 2011. I've mostly lived out of a backpack since that time, and I've spoken to the rich and famous, poor and homeless, and everyone in between. I've helped uh, assist with healing modalities all across the world and learning about psychedelics and this path to meditation, um, discussing many national and world politics, interviewing incredible people and amazing places along the way. The memoir I've been working on for years is Looking Glass Shattered. It still needs a complete rewrite since I started it in 2010. Uh, one day looking to have that come into fruition. What is a backpack? Well, mostly what I've lived out of is a backpack now almost uh, nine years. What has it taught me about backpack journalism, how I've been able to travel around and put videos up on the YouTube channel, face triage out there. And what's come to me is really the native. That's the one word as I've walked through words like freedom, equality, justice. These are all great words, but the word native is really reverberating, especially since I left Cancun, Mexico and did psychedelics, including combo, a poison frog that's injected in your arm, and ayahuasca and buffalo virus. We'll be talking about that more in upcoming episodes. There's a lot of really good medicine and people out there. My pen name is My Human Compassion. What is compassion and this voyage of where are we going with the environment, humanity, and join along on this journey so we can have a better understanding of ourselves and the world around us.
That intro music is from Most Epic Music of All Time, African Skies by Stephen J. Anderson. You can check that out on YouTube. I'll be putting a link for that in the description. It's a really powerful sound from Africa and just uh, the calling. It's about the calling. How do we get back to native ways and we native to somewhere on this planet? And that's the point of this sh uh, show is to talk about what can we do to fix the karma of humanity and fix the karma of our environment? I've been talking with many leading environmentalists and they're saying that we really have weeks or even months until the entire climate collapses. We are seeing that our coral reefs are disappearing at an alarming rate and species going extinct. We're at this height now, everything seems height heightened that something's happening, something's going on. I found a couple of clips I'm going to play. Uh, one is about what a what is a vision quest? You know, what have I been doing? What are different variations of this uh, that all the original native tribes before the colonial came in, all the colonials like Spain, England, France, all those conquering empires that came in with their ways. One of my favorite stories to tell is uh, I was touring the Mayan uh, ruins many years ago. This was outside Cancun, Mexico, and one of my guides was from the Mayan, and he had a tour guide of people from Spain who came to see the ancient Mayan relics, and the Spaniard said to him, aren't you glad that we brought in all these great things from Spain uh, to Mexico and beyond? His, he had to just swallow a giant rock when he was telling the story of just what did they really give us or uh, this Titanic that we see, this giant iceberg of what we're seeing now and even if we do have weeks or months, I'm going to do what I can to fix our karma for humanity and the karma for uh, Mother Earth the best I can. I uh, put myself out as an unaffiliated presidential candidate, as ridiculous as that might sound, just to shake things up and see where that goes. Uh, I've been throwing myself in the mix of things. You know, the presidency in 2020, if we do have weeks or months, maybe that's not so relevant, but Let's just do the best that we can. One day, if human civilization ever wipes itself out, aliens or one of our successors will cast an eye on our ruined planet and ask themselves, whatever happened to Homo sapiens? Their answer might look a little like this. The root cause won't be the specific catastrophe, conflict or devastation that eradicates us. The problem will begin with the architecture of the human brain. This tool will be remembered for being, in part, deeply impressive, containing a hundred billion neurons capable of extraordinary computations and combinations. As aliens will note, a particular part of the mind, where our most dazzling thoughts unfolded, was known to neuroscientists as the neocortex, a part that in humans was many times larger than that found in any other species. 
This is what helped this hugely clever ape to produce the magic flute, Anna Karenina, Concord, and civilization. However, our alien friends will also note that the human mind contained another component, very influential but far less impressive, known as the reptilian brain, an aggressive, lustful, impulsive section of machinery with a great deal more in common with what might be found in a hyena or a small rodent. Because of this reptilian brain, Homo sapiens ended up with three grave problems. Firstly, tribalism. Humans were always on the verge of developing violent hatreds of foreigners and manifested strong, ongoing tendencies to slaughter strangers in vast numbers. They could never reliably see the humanity in all members of their own kind. Secondly, Homo sapiens was fatefully prone to short-term thinking. Even when confronted by data, it could only imagine the near-term future a few years at best, viewing the long term as a chimerical and unreal state. Its immediate impulses were left uncontained and worked to destroy its individual and collective future. Lastly, Homo sapiens had an especially keen fondness for wishful thinking. Though capable of immense intellectual achievement, its mind hated to reflect on itself. It couldn't bear to submit its ideas to rational scrutiny. It preferred to act rather than think and daydream rather than plan. Having invented the scientific method, it preferred, in most cases, just not to use it. It had a narcotic desire for distraction and fantasy. It didn't want to know itself. That's an excerpt from... YouTube uh, video called Why Humanity Destroyed Itself. And I'll be putting the link so you can check out the full episode. It basically is talking about the uh, reptilian brain and how this has been our downfall. And one of the things I've been talking about, especially with the word socialism, that everybody loves socialism. It's just the version of that that people prefer so the example I give is if you're from the background of law enforcement, military intelligence, you're going to be into prisons and stricter laws, locking people away. The ridiculous three times you're outlaw, or we've actually got people right now in the United States who didn't even commit a nonviolent crime, but they had three strikes and they're facing life in jail. The private prisons uh, don't give people second chances or even third chances or uh, just the ridiculousness of making money off of uh, what the police are doing, or what the legal and the politicians are doing. The amount of the reptilian brain is really the conservative Republican crew and their ringleaders are the Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, people like that, that are just reptilians. And, you know, we can use this uh, video or our audio, I should say, I'll put it up on YouTube also with some slideshows that hopefully the aliens and the other people that will come, will see the ridiculousness of the reptilian brain from the conservative Republican crowd. And, they're about tribalism and many of the things that we just heard and, you know, why humanity destroyed itself. The other type of socialism 
uh, for example, would be the immigrant attorney and the social worker for legacy for maybe decades, uh, maybe centuries, people walking upon the earth who want to help others despite whatever culture or background they're from. This is the version of socialism that a lot of the people who don't have a reptilian brain have really followed well. And so these are ideas and concepts. And now with international travel and the internet, we can talk with people from anywhere in the world. We're connecting with this idea, this need that no matter where you're from, what your culture, your background is, that you'll, you deserve many, many chances. You have deserve unlimited chances. Uh, you can make a mistake, but there'll be something waiting for you and we're not going to lock you up forever. These are all things that get outside the reptilian brain and things that can keep humanity going. What's happened on the order of getting rid of the stricter prisons and getting rid of the laws and the politics that are just generating money. And we're going to talk more about Ubuntu, which is a term. Ubuntu is a Nguni Bantu term, meaning humanity. It is often translated as I am because we are, or humanity towards others. It's often used in a more philosophical sense to mean the belief in a universal bond of sharing that connects all humanity. In Southern Africa, it has come to be used as a term for a kind of humanist philosophy, ethic, or ideology known as Ubuntuism, propagated in the Africanization process of these countries during the 1980s and 1990s. This definition is from Wikipedia that a person is a person through other people, uh, affirmation of one's humanity through recognition of others and their uniqueness and difference. And I guess I'll add to that, no matter what's in your bank account, if you have 0.0, .0 in your bank account, we still see your value, that human life, human beings, so long as we take out the conservative Republican reptilian brain, we can get back to ideas or notions. And as we look at the idealism of Ubuntu is that humanity is not embedded in my person solely as an individual. Humanity is collaborative. It's uh, bestowed upon the other and me. Humanity is a quality we owe to each other. We create each other and need to sustain this otherness, creation. If we belong to each other, we participate in our creations. We are because you are. And since you are, definitely I am. The I am is not a rigid subject, but a dynamic self-constitution dependent. Ubuntu is encouraging community equality, uh, propagating distributions of wealth as a vestige of agrarian peoples as a hedge against the crop failures of individuals. Having cooperatives where if one farmer due to natural regression, uh, bad storms, the other farmers will come and help that person out instead of that person going bankrupt. 
which is more of the conservative Republican reptilian brain. Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire from YouTube, uh, one of my favorite songs. Uh, well, I guess when we talk about the fire and the reptilian brain, it gets back again, you know, who is thinking with that cortex, short-term profits? The word profit is a very interesting word because it can mean profit of a company, but it also means profit of communities. Yeah, as we've seen ridiculously pumped up uh, stock market values. We also see Main Street where wealth inequality is at record highs. And what the conservative Republican reptilian brains are using for their indicators of economic, it's not about what we're seeing through the corporate media. They just keep promoting the stock market, but that only helps a small percentage of people on the planet that can actually afford to buy those stocks. I've been a talk show host since 2014, and many of the economic uh, advisors that I've had on in the past, whether it was with Voices of Global Freedom or some other shows as a uh, guest or as a host on various shows over the years, a lot of them are predicting a major stock market crash. And we could see many of these stocks going to 0.0 and a major shift. And as some of my friends have pointed out, the next Great Depression could make the one from the 1930s USA uh, look like Disney World in comparison. The one saving grace is the native. And if we can all figure out ways to get back, as I've been writing this book, Looking Last Shattered, I have a had a chapter in there about First Nation ways, original ways, and we're all First Nation people from somewhere on earth. We're all native. We have different tribes in our blood, different DNA. We're able to give each other blood transfusions, even though we have different skin color, different tribes. There's lots of people working on ways to see how we can collaborate and get past the reptilian brain. Mountains up there, a beautiful place. And the vision quest is uh, where you go up on the uh, on the mountain, they say up the hill quite often. You go on a four day uh, fast of food, no food, no water. And uh, it's uh, 
allows you to be uh, uh, in tune with Mother Nature because you're out there in the woods on the mountain and uh, you're just there by yourself with no uh, other other than the creatures that uh, that uh, on the hill and uh, so it's a very beautiful ceremony that's just one description of a vision quest from the seven circles foundation found that on youtube i've personally have felt that everybody leads their own vision quest uh sometimes you figure out what it is and we could even say that our entire life is a vision quest it's not just limited to strapping on a backpack and just going uh, there's things we can do within our local community that brings a lot of visions and a lot of good ideas and solutions to many of our individual family community country level issues that we're right now really trying to uh, work through i recently spent two weeks living around the appalachian trail doing some hiking but i wasn't uh really there for doing long distances i did some miles i saw some beautiful sights some incredibly beautiful mountains and met some really cool people. Uh, one of the things I did differently this year was I spent five days all alone in my tent right near a really beautiful creek and just listening to that water for five days straight. And it was just myself and nature. I did have some food and water. I, I stayed with that, but it was uh, it's a, gives me a good baseline of something to deal with all the stress that city life can have to offer. And it was a good precursor for some of the things that I would go through this year. 2019 has been a particularly difficult year for me in that some of the, I call it the last Buddha steps, the challenges that I've had, both with my family and society as a whole, really came through when I spent six months in Brazil and then three weeks in Cancun, Mexico, and then I came back the Buffalo virus of all the medicines from the jungle area, or this considered more jungle type medicine, that's a, a toad that lives Sonora, Mexico, all the way up to Colorado. Buffalo virus, they take the secretions of the toad and make a powder out of it and you smoke that. I really don't consider these things as drugs or they're not the kinds of things that you wanna do all the time or that you get addicted to, whether it's ayahuasca, buffalo virus, and there's many others I haven't tried yet, but I'm looking to make a trip down back to South America and go to some other retreats and centers in the near future to look at filming some documentaries and uh, bring more acceptance to the original native ways that we've known about for centuries, but they've been held back because of the colonial uh, influence. One of my favorite sayings is that when you go to see a shaman or people who are very humble about giving the medicine, they give all the credit to the medicine. And then when we go to see these Western doctors who are making 500000 a year or a million dollars a year, there's a certain sense that they're the ones that are getting the credit uh, the, because they've been through years of medical school and they have this intelligence, but there's always a reminder that there's a plant and there's a medicine for all kinds of things. A lot of research on dandelions, being able to help 
various uh, ailments that we have. And there's so much uh, from plant medicine that can solve any of our ailments. I really like that the original ways, the native ways are to give credit to the medicine and not the individual, the person. When I took the Buffalo virus, so I really felt like I had died. It was a near death experience. And I felt as if I was actually trying desperately when I first took the medicine and I was lying on a beach when the sun was coming up, it was around 5 a.m., a beautiful setting. And typically it's uh, administered near water, which is really important because you start feeling as if you're part of the landscape, part of a bigger sense of who we are rather than just being stuck in our head all the time. And when I took that medicine, um, I was fighting, fighting all the things that seemed broken. I just wanted to fight for my life. And I kept wanting to hold on to looking at quality assurance. And that's been my career of 20 plus years of quality. And one of my strongest uh, suits for running for United States president as an unaffiliated candidate is to talk about the importance of quality assurance and Six Sigma ISO 9000. So as I breathed this medicine in, I was fighting with all the things that were broken. Everything seemed broken around me. And then, but I had a gut feeling that no matter what I did, uh, death was coming and, and it did. Uh, and then I woke up on the ocean with the sounds and the sun coming up and it was really beautiful. The only thing I wish I had after that ceremony was to have some more ayahuasca to get me back to feeling more and with nature and with love and with the oneness of everything and the consciousness that we all share. The buffet was such a cut for me, a cut of everything that it really left me feeling as if uh, that I had died and then no matter what I do in my remaining years, however long that is or however short that might be, there's only so much I can do. And uh, made me think that it's not about ego so much as the Buddhist way of attachments that all of us keep hearing about the ego and what the ego is doing. But it's really what are we attached to? And so these thoughts all came to me that whatever years I have left or weeks or months now of what that's what environmentalists are saying, what am I going to do in these remaining time? Well, what can I do to really help my own karma to fix that best I can, fix the karma of humanity and fix the karma of Mother Earth? These are all huge, huge things. There are a lot to really think about and digest and, and do. And we'll be talking about that more as the show continues. This is Native Sourced News Network. And we're going to be looking at all of us are Native. How do we triage that? How do we balance news? How do we use this analysis? And how do we get back to thinking of Native ways to pull out whatever karma that we can for our balance, how can we have a better balance? Well, it's really the word karma and balance are one and the same. How do we balance all of this to have a better place? Each dummy serve your own needs, beat it up and not speak. Grow.
REM, it's the end of the world official video on YouTube. One of my favorite songs, and it always asks the question, it's the end of the world, and I feel fine. So I'll ask uh, our audience, uh, leave your comments, suggestions, ideas. If it is the end of the world, do you feel fine? What are your thoughts about all these major topics, like how we can somehow do something and what is this uh, planet? Where are we going to avoid being just another barren rock, lifeless rock floating through space, like all the other trillions of rocks floating through space? What are we leaving for other civilizations to find? Maybe the aliens who many believe they're already here amongst us. What are, what's our report card? You know, obviously it, it's not looking good, but some some people believe that you know we gotta we gotta have some hope that there's always something, and it's part of the human nature, it's part of being a human being, is that there's something we can do, something we can save us, and a lot of that is because of Hollywood, all these Superman, Batman, superhero movies, they always. Something swoops in. Will it be a God that will save us? Will an alien save us? Who will save us? Can we save us? Uh, what's going to happen with this climate disaster? Well, I came across a YouTube. It's called Part One Indigenous Native American Prophecy. It's a part of a series called Elder Speak Part One. And I want to play some of that and then we'll go over this to see what the prophecy is. And according to Native Americans, uh, they foresaw that the United States of America would end up being destroyed. And so we're gonna piece this apart, this audio, and then we'll discuss it. Time evolves and comes to a place where it renews again. There is first a purification time, then there is renewal time. We are getting very close to this time now. We were told that we would see America come and go. And in a sense, America is dying from within because they forgot the instructions on how to live on earth. Everything is coming to a time where prophecy 
and man's inability to live on earth in a spiritual way will come to a crossroad of great problems. It's the Hopi belief, it's our belief that if you're not spiritually connected to the earth and understand the spiritual reality of how to live on earth, it's likely you will not make it. When Columbus came, that began what we term as the First World War. That was the true First World War when Columbus arrived. Because along with him came everybody from Europe. By the end of the Second World War, we were, in America, we were only 800,000 from 60 million to 800,000. So we were almost exterminated here in America. Over 95% of our body is water. And in order to stay healthy, you've got to drink good water. When the European first came here, Columbus, we could drink out of any river. If the Europeans had lived the Indian way when they came, we'd still be drinking out of water because the water is sacred. The air is sacred. Our DNA is made of the same DNA as the tree. The tree breathes what we exhale. When the tree exhales, we need what the tree exhales. So we have a common destiny with the tree. We are all from the earth. And when the earth, the water, the atmosphere is corrupted, then it will create its own reaction. Mother is reacting. In the Hopi prophecy, they say the storms and floods will become greater. me, it's not a negative thing to know that there will be great changes. It's not negative. It's evolution. When you look at it as evolution, it's time. Nothing stays the same. As I've been scouring the internet for different prophecy and things that can be foretold, I've come across another one I'll play here shortly called The Prophecy of the Black Snake. Uh, it's concerning the frontline water protector and the Dakota Access Pipeline. Many of the things where we've had so many protesters there, and I would like to go there at some point to see how to help with the efforts to finally deal with all these pipelines that we're seeing. I'm here currently in Austin, Texas, and I'd like to see more people halting the uh, pipelines. I mean, the ridiculousness of ridiculous that we have these pipes running all across the world and any kind of leak or horrible uh, pollution that they're causing. It's our last stand. It's our last chance 
to at least have stood up and done something. Because if we don't stand for something, we will fall for anything. The black snake, as as I see it, and it's one of it. It's a concept. It's a it's a narrative. It's a story we tell of the snake that is destructive. That is 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 its purpose. Its instruction was to bring sickness and destruction to the communities, to 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 cast a shadow upon our hearts and our spirit of negativity, of dysfunction, and of unhealthiness, and that. The, the, the pipeline that we see with key, uh, Black, uh, Dakota Access, just like the proposed Keystone XL, is a manifestation of that black snake that is hell-bent on sowing destruction and, and, and disease through our lands, but also doing so at, the, at its origins and all the way down to the point of, uh, of refinement to the communities that have to deal with it on the other end. That the, that the black snake is a manifestation of the sickness of society. That that black snake is the manifestation of the sickness of capitalism and of the system that is hell-bent on the destruction of those that are dependent on the land, that have a spiritual relationship to the, the, spirit, the spirit of Mother Earth. And so when we talk about rising up against the black snake, it's rising up against that sickness of capitalism, the sickness of that actual physical pipeline and, and, and igniting the fires and utilizing the spiritual essence of water to, to fuel our movement. That was the Prophecy of the Black Snake, Bioneers.org. Frontline water protector Dallas Goldtooth explains the Prophecy of the Black Snake as manifested by the Dakota Access Pipeline and pipelines built across North America. If somehow I were to be present in 2020 uh, to help fix the karma, one of the things I'd look at is open up every treaty that the colonials, when they came to this land, uh, forced uh, reparations best we can. If somehow this could happen and meet with the tribes in the Four Corners regions of where I went on some of my travels to Flagstaff, Arizona, in that area, and to see how we could give back some of the lands that were taken from the native, to look at the Appalachian Trail that goes from Georgia to Maine that has always been in my heart to do sections of that and to see the healing powers of being alone in nature and to give that back to some of the tribes that were forced from that land during the genocide of the Trail of Tears uh, by one of the worst presidents of all time, as bad as a Hitler, uh, Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson is considered president of the U.S. Uh, when he did the Indian Removal Act of 1830, also known as the Trail of Tears. He's known actually as to be a Hitler uh, and to worse, uh, when, uh, as we just learned, 60 million Native Americans uh, were annihilated, now 800,000, almost extinct, and due in part to President Andrew Jackson. Pipeline, but those on the front lines know 
That black snake was sent for us to grow, to shed the skin, our ancestors pray, of wounds old and calloused, so that we may stay, so that we may unite, unity our tool. No weapons are found in this court of rule. Men becoming ki'ai, steadfast in their guard, protecting women's hearts as their song become roots, roots to cast out healing for all sentient beings, to honor sacred mother, heart forward we heal. The salmon will run, the mauna will breathe, the rivers will flow. The rainbow is here and prophecy tells us all generations will hear. Nations and our people that been living here for thousands of years. Stand up. We've been fighting for our freedom since the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria. Stand up. Like Geronimo, Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, Leonard Peltier. Stand up. Now they poisoning the waters for our sons and our daughters, so we on the frontier. We one nation, one cause, one, one people, one, one tribe. Now it's us against the pipeline. Get on your feet for Stanley Rock, and we'll show you how strong we could be when we unify. To Stand up, stand in rock, no DAPL, no DAPL uh, official video on YouTube. When I got back from Cancun after taking all those medicines, it really did strip my looking glass. The theme of my book since 2010 is looking glass shattered. How do we look at ourselves, our families, communities, countries? What looking glass should we keep and which one should we shatter away? How do we get back to what really should be the things that can keep us going and fix our karma, reparations, and move on uh, with all these issues that we have to deal with? When I got back, I felt compelled to live outside for a while. I was living outside the Drapalong Losaling Center in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And I felt that I had to do a ceremony, a ritual to help heal Mother Earth. As I was living outside, doing ceremony, chanting the original ways, I felt a language coming to me that I didn't even know, and I still don't know, these words were all about helping heal Mother Earth, helping heal what has been taken from all of us as we all are people of this earth. It might be the end of the world as we know it, and it might be that are we fine? Or how can we deal with what, as the elders are saying, change, that to accept change? 
to embrace it. As I was chanting, I felt incredible energy of uh, the garden of mother, the garden of Adam and Eve, like the Bible times. And this brilliant yellow light had suddenly uh, opened up in this river where I was at and I was pulling artifacts out and it felt like some communication with an alien or some higher power. And I felt like I had to do all these tests, like the eightfold Buddha way to be chanting, uh, cleaning up trash in the river as best I could, looking at all of earth as the Garden of Adam and Eve, and nothing special about Jerusalem or some of the things we're told that other land is more somehow more special than other. It's all special. This whole planet is the Garden of Adam and Eve. I was chanting and chanting. Whether I feel like this came from taking that jungle medicine that it just cleared my slate and who I've become and what I'm thinking from living in the woods and coming back to the city. As I was naked chanting, I felt as if driven to lead this monk or Buddha or path or challenge or test. The neighbors called the cops on me, and next thing I know, about eight cops arrested me and hauled me off to the mental health facility where I spent a week and being held down three times with Thorazine against my will. Each time I made sure and told them I didn't want that drug. I didn't want to be incapacitated. And no matter what, they did it anyway. I could hold on to PTSD trauma from being held down against my will, but I see it all as a lesson and I'm learning about why is everybody calling the cops on everybody? And if I was in India or other countries, if I was naked chanting and doing a ceremony, so what? Or if it was a designated place on the planet where it's accepted and suddenly I'm thrown in this mental hospital where People are making money off me. They're uh, acting out uh, to control me and to manipulate me because I'm simply just living the native ways. I'm chanting. I'm doing what we're all supposed to do. And that's what the jungle medicine does. It wakes us up to who we really are. So I could look at that time as trauma and feeling like, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with it. You know, I'm being held down. I'm being held back, but I, I made it. And uh, it just gave me more strength. It gave me more life lessons that I needed at the time. 
and I didn't want to get shot by the cops. So I got down on the ground and crawled to them so they could handcuff me and put a, a white sheet on me. And when I was at the police cruiser, I felt as if I was Gandhi looking down at the mirror reflection of myself on the police cruiser. I saw back a version of me as Gandhi and what has happened since the colonial powers and uh, this buying and selling and this capitalism and this corporatocracy, what's happened to our native, our polluted waters, our land, our common area. This is our shared area, the land, the water, the forests, the parks, the trees, the sheer beauty of everything that's ours. And there's so much profit and pollution not profit for communities, but profit for companies to be made. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Freedom, the Golden Gospel Singers on YouTube, a really incredibly beautiful, speaks to the need of freedom. And this has been a theme of my entire life. The, in Latin, the words Deo Presso Liber have always been 
part of my uh, life, part of my being, especially the youngest brother and that feeling of always uh, never really fully feeling free and wanting to even write a book called Looking Glass Shattered, you know, how to ultimately, how does everybody become free? Just like the Pharrell Williams song, Freedom, and a lot of other activists and people have been talking about how do we get rid of the slave shops and the warehouse belt in the U.S.? People are still working at slave labor jobs, which any job that doesn't pay a livable wage is slave slavery. It's a form of slavery. If you can't, no matter what country you're in, anywhere in the world, if you can't, uh, if you're working and you can't meet uh, your livable needs, food, clothing, shelter, love, a sense of community, uh, if you can't meet these basic needs, then it's a slave job. And unfortunately, we live in a world where there's a lot of slave labor-related jobs. Daniel Roy Barron, uh, your host of Native-sourced news network, uh, at Face Triage on most social media. I've put myself out as a uh, unaffiliated candidate for 2020 uh, U.S. president in particular as a Black Lives Matter and a reparations vote for Native Americans giving back parts of the Appalachian Trail and other treaties that, uh, and community centers that we can build for African American and Native American communities. One of the important things is to get out why we need uh, a lot of our reparations. Uh, one of the Quotes that came from an unknown author, I will read here. It says, you mean to tell me that someone down your ancestry line survived being chained to other human bodies for several months in the bottom of a disease-infested ship during the Middle Passage, lost their language, customs, and traditions, picked up the English language as best they could, while working free of charge from sunup to sundown as they watched babies sold from out of their arms women raped by ruthless slave owners and killings by these slave owners uh, here in the United States. They were forced to take na names with no last names, no birth certificates, no heritage of any kind. They braved the Underground Railroad, survived the Civil War to enter into sharecropping. They learned to read and write out of sheer will and determination, faced the burning crosses of the KKK, averted their eyes at the black bodies swinging from ropes hung on trees. And after they fought in world wars, African-American soldiers came back to return to the United States of America as boys. Well, as they were treated horribly, they were marched in Birmingham, hosed in Selma, jailed in Wilmington, assassinated in Memphis as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King segregated in the South, ghettoed in the North, ignored in history books, and stereotyped in Hollywood. And in spite of it all, someone somehow endured every error to make sure they would get here and receive all these obstacles and somehow to keep going. Um, this is from an author unknown, 
Uh, it's a very important aspect to a whole Black Lives Matter and reparations. One of the ideas I came up with is to give part of the cotton belt, which is a section through Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. It's known as the cotton belt, where during slavery, a lot of the cotton uh, was raised there. And to give a section of that back to African-Americans to actually have their own country, similar to what's in the Four Corners area of for Native Americans, that this would be their autonomous area, that they can run and have their own system of government however they wish. And it's a way, it's an attempt at reparations. The other area would be giving back financial reparations and also uh, giving back community centers to some of the more impoverished areas around the United States where these community centers, people can come and have a better life for education and for welfare of people somehow that we can fix the karma, the horrible karma of this U.S. corporatocracy, this place that we uh, see is, as the prophecies are saying, it's uh, crumbling from within. In these last days, some attempt to whatever we can do to fix all the mess that was left here from our previous leaders. It would seem ridiculous to dispute invocations of the founders or the greatest generation on the basis of a lack of membership in either group. We recognize our lineage as a generational trust, as inheritance. And the real dilemma posed by reparations is just that, a dilemma of inheritance. It is impossible to imagine America without the inheritance of slavery. As historian Ed Baptist has written, enslavement, quote, shaped every crucial aspect of the economy and politics of America, so that by 1836, more than 600 million, or almost half of the economic activity in the United States derived directly or indirectly from the cotton produced by the million-odd slaves. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America, $3 billion and $1860, more than all the other assets in the country combined. The method of cultivating this asset was neither gentle cajoling nor persuasion, but torture, rape, and child trafficking. Enslavement reigned for 250 years on these shores. When it ended, this country could have extended its hallowed principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all regardless of color. But America had other principles in mind. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. It is tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror, of plunder, from enslavement, but the logic of enslavement, of white supremacy, respects no such borders. And the god of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs, coup d'etats and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored state terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. 
He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they'd love a word with the majority leader. What they know, what this committee must know, is that while emancipation dead-bolted the door against the bandits of America, Jim Crow wedged the windows wide open. And that is the thing about Senator McConnell's something. It was 150 years ago, and it was right now. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair-weather patriotism, to say that a nation is both its credits and its debits, that if Thomas Jefferson matters, so does Sally Hemings, that if D-Day matters, so does Black Wall Street, that if Valley Forge matters, so does Fort Pillow, because the question really is, not whether we will be tied to the somethings of our past, but whether we are courageous enough to be tied to the whole of them. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Coates. Next witness is Mr. Danny Glover, an actor, a producer, and an activist for various causes. He's currently Goodwill Ambassador for UNICEF chairman of the board of Trans-Africa Forum, an African-American lobbying organization for Africa and the Caribbean, and a friend of Harry Belafonte. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you. Start the clock. Thank you, Mr. Coates. It's not often that you hear the words of a young man and they enliven your emotional memory, your historic memory, as he just did at this moment. Thank you so much. I am deeply honored to be here today, offering my testimony at this historic meeting about the reckoning of a crime against humanity that is foundational to the development of democracy and material well-being in this country. A national reparations policy is a moral, democratic, and economic imperative. I sit here as the great-grandson of a former slave, Mary Brown, who was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. I had the fortune of meeting her as a small child. I also sit here as the grandson of Reese May Huntley and Rufus Mack Huntley.
my maternal grandparents, who were both born before Plessy versus Ferguson, Supreme Court decision in 1896. And for a significant portion of their lives, they worked as sharecroppers and tenant farmers in rural Georgia until they were able to save enough money to purchase a small farm. They were subsistent farmers. Despite, despite much progress over the centuries, this hearing is yet another important step in the long and heroic struggle of African Americans to secure reparations for the damages inflicted by enslavement and post-emancipation and racial exclusionary policies. Many of the organizations who are present today at this hearing are amongst the historical contributors to the present national discourse, congressional deliberations, and Democratic Party presidential campaign policy discussions about reparations. We are also indebted to the work of Congressman John Conyers for shepherding this legislation. The adoption of H.R. 40 can be a signature legislative achievement, especially within the context of the United Nations International Decade of People of African Descent. We should also note that the common market nations and the Caribbean community, CARICOM Reparations Commission, chaired by Professor Sir Hilary Beckles, who is here with us today, has exercised a leadership role from which we as a nation can benefit. Our sustained, direct, effective policy actions in full collaboration with African Americans and progressive citizens allies is the ultimate proof of the sincerity of our national commitment to repair the damages of the legally and often religiously sanctioned inhumanity of slavery, segregation, and current structural racism that limit full democratic participation and material advancement of African Americans and of our country's progress as a beacon of justice and equality. So I call on all of the elected public officials in the Congress to demonstrate your commitment in action today and stand forth with Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee and co-sign co HR 40. In closing, with the insightful and still I'm, I close, excuse me, with the insightful and still relevant words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. And I quote, why is the issue of equality still so far from solution in America? A nation which professes itself to be democratic, inventive, hospitable to new ideas, rich, productive, and ultimately powerful. Justice for black people will not flow into society merely from court decisions, nor from fountains of political oratory, nor will a few token changes quell all the temptuous yearnings of millions of disadvantaged black people. 
White America must recognize that justice for black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. The comfortable, the entrenched, the privileged cannot continue to tremble at the prospect of change in the status quo. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. That's an article from PBS.org. You can find it, PBS.org, under NewsHour. It's the uh, House panel debates the idea of reparations for slavery from June 19th, 2019. Lawmakers uh, held the first congressional hearing in more than a decade on reparations, spotlighting the debate over whether the United States should consider compensation for the descendants of slaves in the United States. As a Black Lives Matter candidate for 2020 U.S. president, I'll do what I can to seek uh, community centers, uh, financial reparations, and looking at it, as Danny Glover said, the whole structure of what is going on with um, one of the realities, and I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee originally, but my parents are from New York, uh, dad from Brooklyn and my mom from Queens, is the realities of why the South is better is because a lot of the older conservative Republicans with those reptilian brains, uh, they died off. And that's one of the reasons why we see a better South. But it, I, on my travels, I always like to spend a lot more time in California, uh, Oregon, a lot more enlightened, a lot more, uh, not that any of these areas are necessarily perfect, but um, there's a lot less of the reptilian brain uh, going on. And of course, on my travels, when I've been to Denmark and some other countries that uh, actually teach a lot more about equality than even the United States. Uh, my times in Europe. But also when I was in Brazil for six months, I also realized that their slavery, as it was told to me, is 17 times worse than the slavery in the United States. I, it's just different versions of horrible, uh, horrendous. there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of blaming. And Ubuntu means to feel your shadow and not to throw your shadow onto other people. So to feel your shadow means to feel your difficult emotions, feel your prejudice, feel your jealousy, feel your anger, feel your hatred, and become like the lotus flower and transform it through breathing in those shadow, muddy parts of yourself, transforming it into your heart, 
and then blossoming like a flower. That's Ubuntu. So what does it mean? It means if you're feeling prejudice or you look at someone and you don't like the color of their skin and it brings up memories or it brings up hatred and you find yourself going into a cycle of stereotyping, be aware, watch carefully because your next action you could be reacting, you could be bringing forth some kind of dark emotion and throwing it onto that person and hence the cycle of hatred continues in the world. So Ubuntu means humanity and means acting in a way that is kind, that is humanitarian, and that involves listening, deep listening. First, we have to listen to ourselves and feel our own prejudice or our own judgments or our own anger, whatever those shadow parts of yourself are, and not judge yourself. Just feel it, and then all you have to say is, wow, I'm feeling these emotions. And I say to you, welcome to the human race. Welcome to the process of transformation. What do you do with these difficult emotions? Do you act? Do you react? Do you attack someone else? No, that's not Ubuntu. That's not being humane. You feel these, these dark emotions, these difficult emotions. Breathe them in and just say, Ah, oh, I've got anger. Ah, oh, I've got jealousy. Ah, oh, I've got prejudice inside of me. The next thing you do is breathe in and out, feel the prejudice, feel the anger, feel whatever it is, breathe it out through your feet, and then look into the eyes of the person who you have impressions of, whether they are negative or, or positive. Look into the eyes of that person who you maybe have um, stereotypical thoughts about and see their humanity, see their humanity and listen to what they have to say. And as we do this, we all start transforming, not just ourselves, but we start transforming our culture and our communities because we start acting in a way of Ubuntu. We start acting in a way that is humane, that is kind, that is receptive, not just to ourselves, but to one another. Daniel Roy, Backpack Baron here. That was uh, on YouTube, The Meaning of Ubuntu, Humanity by John Lockley. Uh, that's interesting, the chanting with the, uh, you know, that beaded instrument. Uh, that was what I was listening to when I did the Buffalo Alvarez recently. And uh, the person doing the ceremony was chanting, uh, chip a day, chip a day. Chip a day, 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 chip a day. It was really beautiful and uh, very powerful. Uh, we have these uh, things from our native sourced ways, uh, Ubuntu, uh, a lot of things that are ways to counter the reptilian brain. And as we just heard about what's going on in Congress about the reparations uh, this year uh, recently. And we have people like Mitch McConnell and Trump who are very reptilian brained people, but only through these talk shows and shining a bright light on what is broken. We can also look at what are the solutions and we don't want to just dwell on all the sadness and uh, brokenness that's around us. We also 
highlight, let's highlight what the solutions that can really bring a better humanity and Mother Earth and see how we can fix our karma the best we can in these days. When I got back from Cancun, I decided I was going to just delete all my content. I did delete some years of interviews and posts and deleting my Facebook and Twitter and completely getting off social media. And I did it for multiple reasons. Some was just a feeling like I really had died from the Buffalo virus, the near-death experience, just wanting to start over. But I was also testing privacy laws, uh, the Patriot Act, the uh, NDAA, all these things that uh, about content and how do we do get all of our content off the internet and start over. And I ran into some really deep roadblocks I can go into on future shows about just the content that I couldn't even delete, uh, which is really scary. I tried and I would look at uh, ways that, you know, we should be able to, um, but also a lot of the things that uh, I'm talking about here, you know, if we do have weeks or months left before the whole climate collapses and this planet becomes unbearable and unsupportable for life anymore, uh, maybe a lot of the things that uh, it throws a wrench in thinking in terms of those types of things seem very trivial and maybe not even important. Um, you know, to be able to think this way, I was very depressed for about a week. And then I started thinking, um, well, if the world is ending and there's nothing we can do, and even um, these things like Green New Deal are actually just uh, feel good things that, and some of them, these econo uh, environmental enhancements are actually uh, just about making more money that people can, in these last days, how can people rake in more money and money and money? And there's something about uh, the prophecy and what we heard earlier about that we can still hold on to this is change and to accept it. I do have to wonder, though, in Buddhism, it says that uh, we are reborn into a new life after we die um, if life itself is gone, will that end the cycle of Buddhism? Will that mean that we are in the age of the last Buddha and that none of us will be reborn? If all life is gone, uh, Buddhism and that aspect to it really doesn't matter. Um, we just will have, we'll all be the last Buddha now. We're, this is the death of Buddha. And in these days, every moment is precious. And what can we do around us now? Uh, a lot of the truths are coming out now and a lot of the old ways. Uh, the old ways are what we can turn to in these final days, months, or weeks, or however long we have left. Well, thank you for joining us on the first edition of Native sourced news network uh your host daniel roy backpack baron learn more through face triage on most social media instagram facebook twitter 
we'll wrap this up on a positive note. We believe it really summarizes what the message is we need to understand at this time of human history. And it's one of the four songs of a sacred white buffalo calf woman. And it says, Wayankie chinupa kile wakayelo. Wayankie means to call upon, to summon the power of the universe to behold what it is you're doing. You're filling a pipe. And it says, behold, the pipe is holy of holies. But it really what it's saying is the pipe bowl, the stone, which represents all the mineral people, water, earth, that's sacred. And then the stem, which represents the plant people, that's sacred. There's always animal representation with a bundle, an eagle feather or quilled work from a porcupine. All the animal people, they're sacred. The mineral people, the plant people, the animal people, and we human beings who are all related are sacred. We are all sacred. All is sacred. That's what the song says. with Chief Phil Lane Jr. Uh, on YouTube. It's on the Uplift uh, channel. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, as we wrap up here, I'm thinking of different chants and you know, whether I'll ever know what language that has uh, permeated through my soul or maybe it's it's not even a language, it's just guttural or just feelings of what is native you know how can we all be native and how can this uplift us how can this help us how can we be better people uh, through a revolution of values as reverend dr martin luther king said is what we really can all have at the individual family community country and United Nations levels. Uh, how can we address these issues? How can we fix the past? How can we go forward? How do we best go forward together with Ubuntu? The best summary I've heard as far as describing what Ubuntu is, it's a picture that I have on the Facebook profile. It says, an anthropologist proposed a game to the kids in Africa. It was a tribe in Africa, and he put a basket full of fruit near a tree and told them that whoever got there first won the sweet fruits. 
When he gave them the signal to run, they all took each other's hands and ran together, then sat in a circle enjoying their treats. When he asked them why they chose to run as a group when they could have had more fruit individually, one child spoke up and said, Ubuntu, how can one of us be happy if all the other ones are sad? Ubuntu in the Osha culture means I am because we are. Thanks again. We'll see you next time on Native Sourced News Network. Daniel Roy, Backpack Baron. Daniel Roy Baron 2020, uh, unaffiliated native. De oppresso liber, freedom of the oppressed. This next song is the Ubuntu World Edition official music video, and the channel is called Ubuntu Song on YouTube. Sweet.